Dear brethren and sisters, I'm sure as we read that chapter in Exodus a few minutes ago, you would have noticed the links between that chapter and yesterday's New Testament chapter. So in Exodus 24 this morning, we read of a mountain, a cloud, the participation of Moses, and the glory of the Lord, and the divine proclamation from heaven. And in yesterday's reading from Mark, Mark chapter 9, we were with Jesus and some of his disciples at the Transfiguration. As I say, I'm sure the links there are very obvious to all of us. And so, in these accounts, we read of some of the most wonderful experiences that were ever granted to mortal man. At the Transfiguration, for a short time, Peter, James and John witnessed their dear Lord transfigured from a lonely pilgrim on the world's highway into the King of Glory. It was a foretaste for Jesus of the glory that he would have in due time. And with him, sharing a similar glory, were Moses and Elias. We won't spend time on this occasion discussing whether Moses and Elias were actually there physically. Perhaps we can talk about that another time. But let's this morning try to enter into the feelings of those disciples and of Jesus himself at this point in his ministry. It was certainly a very wonderful experience in his ministry. He was far from Jerusalem, up in the north in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus and his disciples had been visiting the villages there in the north, nestling under the mighty peaks of Mount Hermon, rising up from the plain. And here it was in the remote heights above the sources of the River Jordan that this wonderful transfiguration took place. And shortly afterwards, as we read, his work of preaching in the cities and villages of Israel came to an end and he set his face for the last time to travel south to Jerusalem. And while he was up there, he said to his disciples, this is Mark chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and by the way he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others, one of the prophets. Why did they say Elias or Elijah? Well, surely because of the words at the very end of their Old Testament scriptures, the last words of Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So Elijah was very much in their minds. And they thought that the end of all things was at hand. 
here was this mighty prophet doing wonderful miracles. He must be Elias. And then Christ turned to his disciples and he said, verse 29, Mark 8, verse 29, and he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And you can feel there Peter's words of conviction and sincerity. He was in no doubt at all that here Jesus was indeed the Christ. And so Jesus says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And so said Jesus, as Matthew's account tells us. And then Jesus began to tell them of the very heavy burden which he had borne every day since the beginning of his ministry. But now it was coming very close. I have a baptism to be baptised with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? It meant that whilst he had been doing all those works of love, healing, preaching every day, yet the cross was drawing ever nearer. How am I straightened? And he spoke as one who was deeply moved in anticipation of Gethsemane, the trial, the crucifixion, but he knew also of the joy that lay ahead. And so now, up in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus said to the disciples that he must indeed go to Jerusalem. He must suffer there many things at the hands of the elders and scribes and chief priests and be killed, and the third day be raised again. But those words, be killed, aroused Peter's sense of loyalty and devotion. And so we read, verse 32, And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But just supposing that Peter's will had prevailed at that point, we wouldn't be here today. There would have been no offering for sin once, no reconciliation, no hope of eternal life. But of course, Peter didn't realise all of that. And he must have been very astonished at the Lord's rebuke. Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savourest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Well, a little later, Peter would come to understand all this. Before Jesus went to heaven, it had all opened out in Peter's mind, and he saw it clearly. But that wasn't going to be just immediately. And then, as they commenced their journey, Jesus began to set out in clear words the principles of true discipleship. And those words were not intended only for the twelve, for we're told that as they came down, the people who gathered round to listen were included too. And he told them, and not to them only, but to us also, as it is written in verse 34, chapter 8, verse 34, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself 
and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Well, Jesus would have known that his Father was about to grant him that wonderful few hours, perhaps, of transfiguration, but he also looked forward to the time beyond his death, beyond his resurrection even, when he would come in the glory of his Father. And now for us in February 2016, that time must be very close indeed. Yes, Jesus will return to the earth. The great judgment will be set and every one of us will be called to meet Jesus. We know that the night is far spent, the Lord's coming is very close, and all the signs of the times are converging on that one great fact. And the point is, are we really, really alive to it, that just as certainly as we sit in this room this morning, so just as certainly Jesus will come and that we will be called to appear before him face to face. Well, we come here at our Breaking of Bread meeting to commemorate the sufferings and the death of Jesus, yes, but also his raising from the dead. And we see how intimately the grief, the pain, the suffering are linked up with his coming glory. And so, after the Lord had spoken of the duties of discipleship, he then said something which must have been very strange and perplexing to those who listened, a real enigma to the disciples, chapter 9, verse 1. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. What did he mean? Well, they must have talked the matter over between themselves and they were surely puzzled as to whatever did he mean. Six days passed and they were still up in the north of the land. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. They were going up to one of those lofty peaks in the Hermon Range, and Luke tells us that Jesus went up into a mountain to pray. And so, sunset came and darkness descended upon them, and they thought that Jesus had just gone up to pray. And while he was praying, Peter and the other two with him were heavy with sleep. But suddenly they were fully awake. A wonderful transformation had taken place 
in the appearance of Jesus as he prayed. And we are told that his face shone as the sun, his very clothing was white, shining, glistering. And there was another remarkable thing. There were two other men with him who were also shining in glory. And the three disciples knew immediately who those others were. One was Moses, Israel's revered leader and lawgiver. And the other, Elijah, none other than Elijah the prophet. And they recognized them straight away. Think of the effect it must have had upon the disciples. Think of what that vision must have done instantly for them. It must have given form and vigor and reality to everything they believed. The reality of the promises, the reality of the glory that is to come in the kingdom of God for all of God's faithful servants. But can you also imagine the fear and the awe when they saw the countenance of their dear master and of Moses and Elias being transfigured as they watched, all shining with brilliance like the sun. And those two men were talking to Jesus and the disciples were able to listen in to the conversation. They were talking about his coming crucifixion. Yes, the very things we remember in the breaking of bread. They were talking about the great sacrifice of the Lamb of God to take away our sins, ultimately to bring life and joy in the day which is to come to every faithful pilgrim. Well, in that heaviness of sleep which those three awe-stricken spectators have been experiencing, till suddenly they were wide awake and alert, can we see there a symbol of the death state? That deep sleep which will overtake all of us in the absence of the Master, and then the awakening to find Jesus Christ back in the earth, back in glory to give life and immortality to all his faithful friends. And that will be a very wonderful awakening to all his faithful servants, joint heirs with Christ, as the Apostle Paul says. And we also read, If so be that we suffer with him, we may also be glorified together. Yes, this really is true. That vision of the transfiguration was a figure of that very glory of which Peter, James and John will themselves partake in that day which is now so very near. Yes, it is true. Whosoever is faithfully following Christ, whoever is denying himself or herself, who is bearing the cross patiently, and we all know in our innermost thoughts what our crosses are, in that day we will know the wonderful and joyful experience that the sufferings of this present time were all worth it, not worthy to be compared with the glory that will then be revealed in us and will be ours. And so, in the case of the transfiguration, 
that was a vision of the glory of the future. And so it was very appropriate, particularly for Elijah and Moses, the prophets and the law, to appear with Jesus in glory. Well, what is that glory that is to be revealed? It is the glory of the Spirit, and that Spirit has always existed. Inseparable from God himself, inseparable from God's grand purpose with the earth, is that out of all the millions who have lived upon this earth, lived and died, there will come those among whom we are numbered, who have been ready to listen and to follow God's commandments. And we are promised that on such, he will certainly bestow the glory of his own divine nature. Well, that is the prospect in front of all of us. And now we return to those three amazed witnesses on the Mount of the Transfiguration. And Peter, James and John carried on watching and they saw Moses and Elijah begin to withdraw. And Peter called out when he saw them going away. Chapter 9, verse 5. Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. Well, yes, he would be afraid in the presence of such glory, and perhaps we would have been afraid also. But then there was yet another awe-inspiring spectacle. The departure of Moses and Elias was obscured by a dazzling cloud, a cloud of brightness, and from out of that cloud they heard a voice. It was the voice of God. This is my beloved Son, hear him. And who was that addressed to? Well, surely it was addressed to those three, Peter, James and John. And these words have been recorded for us to read almost 2,000 years later. Hear him. And this is what we are doing by reading this record in Mark. Many years afterwards, Peter would write of this and he said, there came a voice from the excellent glory. That was the voice from that dazzling cloud. And Peter remembered, he never forgot, he wrote, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he said, and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. They would surely never forget that astonishing experience. Well, there is evidence of the truth of all that we hold dear and believe with all our hearts. Hearing the voice, those three men fell on their faces and as we've read, they were sore afraid, and that was hardly surprising. There was the voice of the deity, and those disciples had seen Jesus in glory for a few minutes, possibly an hour or two, and they were sore afraid. And then a hand touched them, and they heard a familiar voice, Arise, and be not afraid. 
and we're told they looked round about. A curious searching look, as that expression means, but when they looked around, there was only Jesus, and there he was, again in his ordinary clothes, their dear master, and he was with them again. And then they began to come down the mountain, and on the way down, Jesus charged them, tell the vision to no man, till the Son of Man be risen from the dead. And they didn't know what he was talking about. Yes, how slow of heart, how slow of heart they were to believe all that the prophets had spoken of Jesus. And so as they made their way down the mountainside, we are told they were discussing among themselves with perplexity and puzzlement. What did he mean about the Son of Man rising from the dead? Verse 10. They kept that saying with themselves, questioning with one another what the rising from the dead should mean. What on earth was Jesus talking about? Well, that wonderful experience of transfiguration was a great encouragement, surely, to Jesus himself. He knew that he was now making his last journey towards Jerusalem, He knew that that journey was going to culminate in his death. To the disciples, the crucifixion came as a shattering blow and they were bewildered and distressed beyond measure. They felt utterly crushed and despondent. But Jesus had carried the burden of that knowledge for some three and a half years. He had known all along that he would be crucified and put to death. But on the third day after the crucifixion, all those disciples were gathered together in a room in Jerusalem and reports begin to circulate, Jesus is alive. And they would have thought, no, it's impossible, it can't be. And then came in those two out-of-breath disciples who had come quickly from Emmaus. We have seen him. We have talked with him. We didn't know it was him until he sat down with us to break bread. And then suddenly our eyes were opened. It was Jesus. And he vanished from our sight. And you can imagine the tense atmosphere that would have been in that room at that moment. The disciples were gathered together, hearing these messages, and suddenly there came a familiar voice. And there in the very room with them was Jesus himself. And they were terrified. They thought they had seen an apparition. But quickly their fears turned to joy and gladness. And again, that was the familiar voice. Peace be unto you. Behold my hands and my feet. It is I myself, handle me and see. And surely Jesus showed them the impressions of the nails in his body. There before them was the risen Jesus Christ. Yes, Peter, James and John had witnessed the transfiguration and now they saw him after his resurrection. And nothing, nothing at all now could ever shake their faith. 
All things were now clear. They realized how dull and slow had been their understanding. And they would recall that Jesus had warned them a number of times of his coming sacrifice. In fact, John the Baptist had proclaimed right back when Jesus was baptized, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. But they hadn't really understood it then. But it was all in the writings of Moses, the Psalms and the prophets. Isaiah in particular had written about it and now it was all falling into place and they could see it in its proper setting. Well, certainly the transfiguration and later the very presence of Jesus among the disciples and later on the wonderful gifts of the Holy Spirit which was granted to them on the day of Pentecost. All these things gave a lifelong invigoration to their faith and nothing afterwards could ever shake it. They were ready to die for Jesus and many of them did. Well, dear brethren and sisters, these things are here for our encouragement, are they not? Here is the very evidence of our own brethren of the first century. But just listen to the words of one who will shortly be reigning on the earth with Jesus over one of the tribes of Israel, for that will be Peter's honour and glory in that day promised by Jesus. Peter wrote, We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. A reference back to the transfiguration. As much as to say, we saw Jesus just as he will be like when he comes back in majesty to reign on his throne. And we couldn't have a more credible witness than that wonderful man, Peter. And so, dear brethren and sisters, as we now break this bread and drink this wine once again, in loving memory of our Lord's sufferings, we also look forward in earnest hope and longing and absolute certainty to the day when he will come and take us to himself. Yes, our Lord will come. There will be the resurrection of the dead and God's kingdom will be established on the earth. And thanks to the work of Jesus, we can all be in the kingdom of God.